Great to see you all today. Uh, another beautiful Sunday, rainy and dreary, but at least it's a little cloudy so you don't have to sweat to death outside today. Uh, my name is Preston Waller. I'm the student pastor here at Forest Park Church. For those of you who may be new or may not know, um, I get the privilege of working with our students, honestly. It's such a privilege. I've kind of been MIA a lot lately, not a lot, but the last couple of weeks. Um, two weeks ago, me and my wife, we went on our vacation for the summer to kind of uh, refresh ourselves, and it was very great. As soon as we got back from our vacation, we went straight into taking our students to summer camp last week. So last week, um, me and my wife took our students to Crossroads Summer Camp in Anderson, South Carolina, a fantastic camp. Um, you know, Clayton King's the, the leader over that, and Clayton King's a very prominent evangelist. Uh, you probably know of him. But our kids did a, had an amazing time. It wasn't only just fun, um, but it was very impactful for our students as well. And so I just want to share a little bit of the highlights with you before we jump into the message today. And I think it's important to share with you the highlights for two reasons. One, I, I want you to see that God still works working in the lives of young people. Uh, there's a lot of cynicism around today's generation and how they think and how they act, but I still believe truly that God's doing some amazing things in today's generation. And then secondly, I want to share this with you because um, probably most of you, I would say, don't really know what goes on on a weekly basis with our student ministry here because, you know, we meet on Sunday evenings. It says Sunday morning. So if you're not following us on social media, you may be uh, a little unaware of what's going on. So I just want to share with you a little bit about what God did last week with our students at Crossroads Summer Camp. Uh, we had four students for the very first time give their life to Jesus and trust Him as Savior. <laughs> there you go. I'll let you get the clap. Uh, we had six students uh, rededicate their life to Jesus and say, I, I do follow Christ, but I've been strained and I want to come back and take my faith seriously. And that was amazing. There we go. And we had one student who felt the call into ministry to pursue that kind of career. So uh, honestly, overall, God did some amazing things. And this is, again, just the highlights. It doesn't uh, encompass everything that God did, the relationships that were mended, the uh, stepping deeper into the faith that happened with our students. So I'm just honestly, I want to give you that update because it was amazing, one, but, but because two, honestly, I am blessed to be able to work with these students. I love these students. I love their parents. I love their families. And to be a part of seeing God work in their life is just such a blessing for me as a student pastor. It reminds me of why I'm doing what I'm doing with my calling and my career. Uh, so today we're in part six of our series, Stories Jesus Told. And this series is all about the parables of Jesus. And we're not going to get to all of them, but we are going to look at a lot of them in this series. And this week we're going to look at a parable in Matthew 20. And this parable is one of the ones that's a little tough. It's not just tough because of understanding what's going on, but it's tough because it really, it really will challenge us today. It'll challenge me, and I hope it'll challenge you to really stop, examine ourselves, or look ourselves in the mirror, and really have a hard conversation with ourselves about maybe some of the things going on in our life. So Scott gets all the nice little prodigal son parables where everyone comes home and everyone's loved, and then I get the one that's like, okay, time to challenge us a little bit. So, But I'm, I'm happy to be able to do that. Um, but before we get into Matthew 20 with the parable of the workers in the vineyard, I want to give us some context to the parable. Because any great biblical scholar, any biblical professor would tell you, if you want to understand the Bible, there's really one major rule you need to follow. Every verse you read, every story you, you look at needs to be put within its greater context of the verses and chapters around it to truly understand what's going on. So before we jump into Matthew 20, I want to show you the context of Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. We know the story, I'm sure. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, uh, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And of course, he walks away depressed and discouraged because he doesn't want to do that. Jesus then goes on a soliloquy right afterwards, and he says to his disciples, he says, it is so hard 
for a rich man to enter into the gates of heaven, it's even harder than a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. And he says, but yet what's impossible with man is possible with God. And then right after Jesus finishes that statement, Peter asks a question. And here's what Peter asks right afterwards in Matthew 19. He says, uh, see, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus, so what will there be for us? <laughs> Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He goes on to say, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And that statement right there is where we're going to hone in today as we look at this parable. So Jesus answers Peter's question, what's in it for me? We've left everything to follow you, so what's in it for us, Jesus? And Jesus kind of says, here's a little bit about what you can expect in the future, in the afterlife. But really, Peter, remember, the first will be last. The last will be first. So he gives him an answer, but then he gives a parable to expound on his answer. And here's the parable that we'll look at today. I want to go through all 16 verses, and then we'll explain it throughout the rest of the message. Matthew 20, starting in verse 1 through verse 16, here's what the parable of the workers in the vineyards is. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for the vineyard. After agreeing with the workers for one denarius, he sent them into the vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You go into my vineyard also, he told them. When evening came to the owner, uh, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, Call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received one denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner, these last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. The landowner replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on one denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So Jesus ends his parable the same way he ends his answer to Peter's question. And one of the things we're going to look at today is, is looking at how this parable changes how we view our life. But before we do that, I just want to give some context because I think it's so important for us to understand that this is a parable. This is a story. This is an analogy that Jesus is using to prove and, and, and implement his bigger point to Peter, which is the first will be last and the last will be first. And I say that because if we're not careful and we forget that this is a parable, we'll begin to make wrong assumptions about what Jesus is trying to teach here. Because we'll take it literally and we'll say, well, that doesn't sound fair. That, is Jesus like a socialist now? Does he like think it doesn't matter, like everyone gets the same pay at the end of the day, no matter how much you work? Like, no, obviously the Bible was filled with verses with, that would say there's an importance in working hard, in, in working hard for God. But well, Jesus isn't making an economic statement here with this parable. And then secondly, I've heard it 
explained this way numerous times, but Jesus is not making a salvation statement here. It's often been compared that the workers who were hired at the beginning of the day represent those of us who gave our life to Jesus at an early age, and we were faithful all the way through, and we got a reward. But those of us who were like on our deathbeds and gave our life to Jesus at the very end are like those who were hired last. They still got the same reward, but they got it at the end. It's not, this parable is not about salvation. Right, a typical Jewish workday was from 6 to 6. So this parable is talking about the different types of groups hired to do a job, but they all got the same reward at the end. It has nothing to do with salvation, nor does it have anything to do with economics. I truly believe, as I've studied this passage preparing for this sermon today, that this message is really about one thing, mainly one thing. It may be about a couple things, but it's mainly about one thing, and it's this. This parable is about perspective. And how you and I choose to see life. Perspective is all about how you view your life, how you view your family, how you view your work, how you view your money, how you view your job. How do you perceive life? And in 27 years of living, most of my problems, if I'm honest, have stemmed from a wrong perspective on a situation, a problem, a person, or myself. And perspective is so key to growing in your faith. We may think, okay, Preston, what's really the big deal? Like, what, what if I'm a little negative sometimes? What if I doubt a little bit? What if I do have issues or I'm not always the most cheerful or positive person? Does my perspective really matter in the grand scheme of how I live my faith, how I live my life? And I would say, yeah, it, it actually matters more than maybe we think it does, right? Because perspective, how we see the world changes our attitudes. And our attitudes decide how we think, and how we think determines how we live. So when we decide to have a wrong perspective, it affects what we feel, and it affects what we think, and it affects how we live. But it all starts with perspective. John Lubbock would say it this way, which I think is a very simple way of putting it today. What we see depends on what we look for. It's a very simple statement, but it's very true. What we see is what we choose to look for. You can easily find the bad in the world the ugly in a person. It doesn't take much to find it. You have to have two eyes and half a brain to see what's wrong with our world or what's wrong with your neighbor or what's wrong with your pastor. It doesn't take a lot of effort. But if you want to see the good in a person, the beauty in the world around you, you can find it, but you've got to want to look for it. And it's going to be a little bit harder to look for it, but you can find it. So perspective is all about how we see the world, how about we see our faith, our family, and everything in our life. And today, when we talk and go through this parable, I want to show you there are two competing perspectives that we can have in life. And you and I fall in only one of these two categories today. And it would be simple for me to say to you guys, hey, uh, this is just... Positive thinking versus negative thinking. This is just a power of positivity message, and don't be cynical, don't be negative. But really, when we look at this message, it's greater than just positive and negative thinking. It goes a lot deeper than that with this story. So here are the two perspectives that we can have on life, and you fall into one of these two today. It's, there we go, gospel-centered perspective versus a self-centered perspective. And those words can seem complex to us, but I want to tell you they're not as complex as you, you think they may be. A self-centered perspective is just that. Who's at the center of your world? You are. Everything revolves around you and what you want and what you think is best. And a gospel-centered perspective puts the gospel and what Jesus did for you at the center of your whole world, at how you see the world, at how you see your family. 
And Jesus would call us to have a perspective that's centered on the gospel. But oftentimes you and I fall into a perspective that centers on ourselves. And we're going to see the difference between the first group, who's a very self-centered perspective in this story, and the last group, a very gospel-centered perspective on this story. So I, wanna, I have four points as far as how these combating perspectives differ from one another. And I hope today as we go into this, we're honest with one another. I told this in the 9 a.m., I'll tell you the same thing. We can make a lot of excuses for why we see the world the way we do. But my hope for us and my hope for me is that as we go through this story, we're honest with ourselves today. That's maybe some of the things we once held to, we don't hold to anymore. And that maybe we do have self-centered perspectives on some things. So I'm hoping that we'll be honest with ourselves as we go through today's message. So the very first point is the difference between gospel-centered perspective and self-centered is this. Gospel-centered perspective sees salvation as a gift. And self-centered perspectives see salvation as a reward. The hardest groups of people Jesus had to deal with were the self-righteous and religious. We know that. We've seen the stories of the Pharisees. But it, he also had a hard time dealing with the successful and the wealthy. Both of these people would have hated the statement, the first will be last and the last will be first. Because they've worked their whole life to be first. They've worked their whole life to do what's right, to get over the hump so that they can be first in line and achieve all that they wanted to now, again, I want to be clear. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't work hard. He's saying, yeah, work hard, but put it in its right perspective. And I put this point first because this point is probably the hardest point for us to grasp today. And I wanted to put it at the forefront of today's message. We live in the best country in the world. I, I absolutely believe that with my whole heart. I don't think there's a better country that you can live in than America. That's just my personal opinion. But I also believe that something like the American dream is very toxic for our faith. Because the American dream is a very good thing, but it's a very bad thing if we allow it to get into our spiritual lives. The American dream is you can become anything you want with a little bit of hard work, a little bit of perseverance, and dedication. And that's true. That's why I say America is the best country, because you could be working paycheck to paycheck right here today in this very auditorium. And if you have a dream to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, to be a teacher, to be a pastor, you can achieve that dream. You may have to sacrifice. You may have to dedicate yourself to some things. You may have to cut a little bit back in order to pursue these careers, but you can achieve those dreams. You have every opportunity in front of you to be able to make that decision. And we work to achieve everything that we have, our homes, our paychecks, our marriages, our, our jobs, and we've worked to earn these things, and that's a great thing. But if we take that thinking into our spiritual lives, we become very, very corrupt. When we start to think like a first thinker, and we take that into our spiritual life, here's a couple things that you may think or say, either internally or out loud. First thinkers say this when they think about their faith. I attend church every Sunday, therefore I'm deserving to know specific information about what's really going on behind the scenes. Some of you may have said this, thankfully you have never said this to me in my three years here. Uh, they'll say stuff like this, I give every month, therefore I'm entitled to tell the leadership how my money is to be spent. I serve once a month, so I have a special place in God's family above those who don't serve, because I obey better than they obey. I, even out within the context of the church, they'll say stuff like this, I serve at the Souls Outreach once a month. And I help feed the hungry. And because of that, I deserve to have a comfortable and blessed life. That's how first thinkers think about their spiritual life. It's transactional. I gave God some of my time, 
to serve its souls, so I deserve something in return. And that's how we think the American dream works, but it doesn't work with our faith. In fact, Paul would say this in Romans 4.4, now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. And he's not being positive there. He's not saying that's a good thing. He's saying now to the one who works, pay is not a gift, but pay is something they're deserving of. And, and this is where I want to just hone in for the next five minutes before I go to the next point, because this is where I really want you to start thinking about your life and thinking about how you see things in your life. I want to get real with you today about what you're owed. Every piece of clothing you have in your closet today, every penny you have in your bank account, every asset you've ever accumulated, every great relationship you've had to work to build is a gift to you. You did not earn any of it. And I know that doesn't sit well with some of us. Because you'll say, Preston, you don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the kind of home I was raised in and how I had to climb and, cr and cra uh, uh, claw and scratch out of that environment so that I can make a living for my family and provide and get a decent education. And I would tell you, you're right. I, I don't know all of your stories. But here's what I do know. I know that the Bible makes it clear that we haven't earned anything. In Psalm 139, David would put it this way. He would say, God has knit us together in our mother's womb. That while we were still in our mother's womb, he was knitting us together and he was forming us. And he was knitting our inward parts together. And, and what that really means for you to understand today is that you didn't get to choose some of the things about you. Let, let's just stick with work and money for a second because I know that's a pressure point for some of us. Some of you have worked incredibly hard to be where you're at today in your fields, and I'm not taking that away from you today. That's not my point. My point is there are some of us in the room who are just naturally better at things than other people. Right? There are some of you in the room who are just great with numbers. Math has always somewhat come easy to you. I'm not saying you didn't have to study. I'm not saying you didn't learn some tricks of the trades in your financial classes in college. I'm not saying you had to work to get an accountant job. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that numbers kind of came a little bit easier to you than maybe someone else in your class. Where'd that come from? Some of you are great with your hands. I mean, you can look at a blank canvas and know exactly what a project's going to look like, the tools you need, the product you need, and exactly how to put them together in the right steps. And then there's some of us like me who can't tell you the difference between a Phillips head and a flathead screwdriver. And, and so we're sitting here and we're, we're laughing, but that's the truth. Some of you are really good with your hands. When you get something in a box as a gift, you automatically throw the instructions in the trash. You don't need to know how to put that together. You know exactly how it goes together. There's some of you who wonder how we're able, me and Scotter, to get on stage and speak for 40 minutes without having a panic attack. And, and I'll tell you, it's not, sure, I took some classes at Liberty about how to speak well, but I, there's just something natural for me to be on stage. That doesn't mean I'm not nervous here today, but it means that there's a little bit of a more comfort for me in front of you than maybe some of you in the audience, and you wonder, how is that? I don't know. I've just always been naturally kind of bent towards that. So before you're in your mother's womb, we don't get to choose the kind of life and the kind of skills we're going to have, do we? 
We're not sitting uh, across from God in a chair before we're born and God says, pulls out a survey and says, okay, uh, Preston, um, what kind of, let's go ahead, let's go through a survey. What do you want? Uh, you want a blonde hair? Oh, good choice. Let, let's make sure you get blonde hair. Um, what kind of skills do you want? You want to be good at speaking or hands or finance or relationships? Okay, we'll, we'll put good at speaking. You want that? That's what we'll give you. Um, how about uh, career? You could do a lot of things. Preston, what do you want to do? Oh, oh, pastor. I wouldn't have checked that one, but that's okay. I'll check it for you. Um, what what kind of family do you want to be born into? A single parent household? A, a two family household? Okay, two family household. What kind of household? You want upper middle class, lower class? Okay, upper middle class, that's what we'll give you. No, I don't get to choose these things. None of us do, but yet we've been blessed to be able to have these things. And because of that, we have to put into perspective that we ha aren't able to earn a dime without God's blessing on our life. Yeah, you're working hard to earn a paycheck. But why are you able to even earn a paycheck? Because God has given you gifts and given you the ability to work. That's a blessing from God. It's a gift from God. So when we look at work, when we look at our life, when we look at a perspective on what we own and what we have, we have to remind ourselves that everything we have is God's. It's not ours. It, James 1.16 makes it clear. If you don't believe anything else I said, I'll just give you this Bible verse. James 1.16 says, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. Meaning, every good thing in your life today is a gift given to you by God. Not something you've earned. Charlie Mitchell would put it this way. Although the concept of a self-made man is inspiring, it finds no place within the Christian worldview. And here's why. Because when it comes to your life, you deserve nothing. But because of Jesus, you have been given everything. Everything has been given to you. And the problem with the workers in the vineyard is they thought they deserved more. They thought they had worked to earn more. But they hadn't. And we'll get into that in this next point now. The second point is this, the gospel-centered perspective is grateful for their portion, but self-centered perspective people compare portion sizes. One of the issues, I want to give you some historical background to this, this day and time because it's going to help you really understand why this parable is so inspiring for the people Jesus told it to. In, in that day and age, the Jewish people were under the rule of a Roman government. They were under the rule of a Roman government that used tax collectors to collect taxes. And, and many of us know this, but we don't know exactly how just corrupt these tax collectors were. I'm going to give you just two examples. I'm going to put it in 21st century uh, wording so we can maybe connect with it a little bit better. Uh, the tax collector would come to a citizen and say, hey, for the past fiscal year, you owe the Roman government $1,000 in taxes. $1,000, okay. Uh, I don't have it right now, but if you give me two months, I'm going to save and I'm going to get you the money. Okay, I'll be back in two months. So they'd come back two months later and they'd say, okay, I have the $1,000. Here you go. I'm paying my taxes. Please take that and pay the government what I owe them. Will do. Well, then the next week, the tax collector would come back and say, hey, buddy, you owed $1,000, but right here on my records, it shows you paid $500. Well, no, I didn't. I, I paid $1,000. What are you talking about? I gave you $1,000 in cash last week. Well, right here on the records, it says you paid $500. And what they were doing, it was taking half of that and putting it in their pocket and then putting $500 on the sheet and then taking the extra and putting it in their pocket. So they were stealing from people. 
They would make up crazy rules like this. I'm going to put it in our, our understanding. They would come to someone and say, hey, you owe $1,000 on your property taxes for your house this year. Okay, I got to pay property taxes, so I'm going to pay it. They pay it, and they'd come back the next week and say, okay, yeah, you paid the property taxes on your house, but you owe $250 on the property taxes for your garage. Well, what, what do you mean? The garage is part of the house. Well, is the garage a habitable space? Do you live, sleep, and eat in the garage? Well, no, I don't live, sleep, and eat in the garage, but it's still part of my house. Well, not when we look at your house. We can see a clear disconnect between where the garage is and where your house is, so you've got to pay extra on that. And you know what they do with the 250 They put it right in their pocket. They were so dishonest. In fact, in the judicial system in that day and age, the, the, ju the judges would not even accept a tax collector's testimony in a court of law because they were so known to be dishonest and liars. And so they were ripping people off, and the Roman government was encouraging them to rip people off, and here's why. The Roman government wanted to expand, and the number one way to expand is through collecting land. Most of the people in Jesus' day and age worked either in their own fields that they owned or worked for someone who owned fields. And so when you can't pay your taxes, the government now seizes your land as collateral. And what happens is you're taking not only someone's land in that day and age, but you're taking someone's livelihood because their land is how they make a living. And so now when we seize someone's land, we have groups of people without work. So in this parable, when you see all these people in the marketplace waiting to be hired for the day, it's not because they're lazy. It's not because they got laid off or fired because they don't know how to do a job. It's because everything they owned and loved was stolen from them. So they're waiting. So that's why in the parable at 5 p.m. when the landowner comes back and says, hey, why are you still waiting in the marketplace? Don't you know the Jewish workday ends in an hour? Do you really? And they're like, we just need some work. We need some money. So even if we have to work an hour, I'll work an hour. And here's why I say all that to say, because with the given circumstances, what the first group forgot about their day in the field is that they were blessed to even have work for the day. That work wasn't guaranteed. And so the fact that they received anything for their day was a blessing. They took for granted the portion that God provided for them. And they forgot to be grateful. And instead, they looked at what other people got and compared what they wish they had. And so self-centered perspective on life takes the portion that God has given them and says, this isn't good enough. I deserve more. I've worked harder. I've been invested longer. I deserve more blessings. And, and this is why comparison is the thief of all joy. Nothing will zap your joy quicker than comparing your life and your blessings and your portion to the person next to you. Gospel-centered people take what God has given them, whatever amount it is, and say, thank you. I don't even deserve this much but this much itself is a blessing. I can at least take this much and buy a couple meals for my family to get us through the next three days. But self-centered people compare and they say, no, 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 no. I need more. I deserve more. We pray and we ask God to give us things and then we look at people who have all the things we want and we get jealous and we get angry at God. Because we want the nice house. We want the nice marriage. We want a good job with salary and benefits. And because we don't have them and other people do, we look at what we have and say, this isn't enough, God. This is not enough for me. 
That's why what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 is so important. He says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The keeping our eyes is the part I want you to realize today. If you focus on God and Jesus alone, you won't have time to compare what you have to other people. When you're a competitive, competitive runner, I'm obviously not, but if you have ran competitively, uh, one of the things that happens in a marathon is you get gassed about halfway through, and you have to find this sense of strength to push yourself through. Well, most runners would tell you what keeps them going is not looking over and seeing how well their competition is doing, but they look towards what's ahead. They look at what they're worked so hard to train to achieve. They look at the finish line and they think, how great will it be when I cross and my family's there to embrace me? And with you and us today, you will never grow in your faith if you're so busy looking at others, you're too busy looking at others, you don't have time to look at the great provider and what he's given you today. Self-centered people always look and compare, but gospel-centered people will say, God has given me enough for today, and I will choose to be grateful for it. And so that leads us to the third point, is gospel-centered perspective defines goodness based on purpose. Self-centered people define goodness based on preference. We live in a culture that's constantly making up new definitions about what is good. What's good has changed over the last decade, it's changed over the last five years, it's changed over the last six months. And here's the problem is if you and I are not careful, we will be, start to believe that everything that is good is defined based on how good it is for me. It's based on my preferences. It's based on what I think is good. What's good for me is good for me, but what's good for you may not be what's good for me, so it's not good. And, and we live in a world where if you're different than me, if you believe differently than me, if you have different money than I do, if you're in a different tax bracket than I am, if you see the world differently than I do, you fall on a different political spectrum than I do, then you don't know what's good, and I do. I don't have to spend time telling you that uh, people define good a lot of times based on what's best for them. And, and here's what we have to understand. If we're going to be gospel-centered people who take our faith seriously, we have to start defining goodness ba not based on what we think it is, but based on what God says it is. And what God says is good is not based in preference and opinion, but based in purpose. Romans 8.28 makes it clear. We know this verse, but we often forget the last part of it. Paul says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And we often stop there. But he goes on to say, who are called according to his purpose. Goodness and purpose are inherently tied together based on God's purpose for you and God's purpose for me. I'll ask uh, uh, just a very rhetorical question to help you hopefully think through this idea of defining goodness. Who gets to determine what's good? Right? Should we define what's good? We are human beings who live in a finite time in history. Most of us, if we're lucky, will live to 80 years old. And 80 years in the scope of the grand scheme of history is very small. And we have limited facts. We don't know everything. I hope you would admit that today. We don't, we haven't experienced everything. We don't know all there is to know and we haven't seen all there is to see. Should someone with a limited perspective, a limited facts and limited time on earth get to determine what's good? No, 
but should a God who exists outside of time, who sees the beginning and the end and everything in between, who knows all people, who created all things, who knows all the facts about what there is to know presently and all the facts about what we haven't discovered yet, get to tell us what is good? If you follow Christ, the answer really is simple. It's the latter. But we live as if the former is true. That's why all traditional Orthodox Christians would stand before you and say, that's why the Bible is so important, because we take our preference out of it and allow the Word of God to tell us what is good. We allow God to tell us what is right and what is wrong, based on purpose, not preference. Joseph didn't find it good to be sold into slavery, to be lied about and thrown into jail. He didn't understand what God was doing because he didn't have the full picture. We have the full picture 2,000 years later. But God had a purpose for him to take him from a pit to a palace, to put him at second in command so that he could be the instrument God used to bring healing and redemption to the Israelites. And so we don't understand because we don't have the full story, but we like to pretend that we do. And self-centered people pretend like they have the full story. In the story of the parable of the workers in the vineyards, this first group to find goodness based on what was best for them. Let, let's just ask a rhetorical question. A typical uh, Jewish workday was from 6, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was the traditional Jewish workday, a 12-hour shift. And in that day and time, there was no one who would disagree. The going rate for working one full Jewish workday was one denarius. That was widely accepted. If you work one full day, this is your pay. This is just the going rate. Did the people who worked in the beginning work a full Jewish workday from 6 to 6? Yes, they worked a full day. Did they get paid a fair wage based on what the going rate was? Yes. Did the people who worked from 5 to 6, one hour, did they work a full Jewish workday? No, they didn't work a full Jewish workday, but they got paid as if they did. Where's the injustice in that situation? There is none. But yet the first group acted as if there was some. Why? Because it was about them. Because it was about what they thought was bad and they thought was good. Based on the standards that God had put in place, there was no injustice. There was only generosity to be found. But yet they lived and acted as if there was some injustice done against them. And that's how we think when we put ourselves at the center of our own world. And then I'm going to move on to the last point. This is the last point for today. Gospel-centered perspective is surprised by grace. Self-centered people have a perspective that's bored by grace. Here's what I mean. If you would confidently say before me and Jesus, not that I matter, but if you would say before all people, I at one point have decided to follow Jesus. There was at least one point then in, in your life that you were captivated by the gospel message so much so that you would come before a holy God and say, everything I have is yours. I lay my life down before you. Take my life and use it for however you want to. At one point in your life, there was at least one moment where you were in awe of what God had done for you. But I know how life goes, and I know how life has gone for me. We get to a point where we become bored by the gospel. We go to church all the time. So we sing the same songs, and we say, I know this song. I've sang this song. I know these words. I know this chorus. I know how it ends. We come before a pastor who opens up the word of God and goes to a story like David and Goliath or the prodigal son story and say, I've heard this story. 
I know the ending. I know how it's preached. I can honestly almost tell you the exact three points the pastor will bring out of this message. And when we do that, we begin to mentally and emotionally turn our minds off from what God is trying to show us because we're bored by grace, because we're bored with the same story, with the same songs. But what if there was still beauty to be found in the 51st time you read the same story or the 51st time you heard the same song? but we tune out because we're bored. And for those of us, again, we ask ourselves this question. I want you to ask yourself this question about grace and about the gospel message. And when I say the gospel message, I mean what Jesus has done for you and accomplished for you on the cross. When was the last time I was truly emotional or in awe of God? I want you to just think on that for a second. Because historically what we do as a people, and even in the Bible we do this all the time, we always swing the pendulum from one extreme to the next. We have seen churches in the past, and even some churches today unfortunately, who try to spend all the money, all the talent in the world to provide a service for you that basically manufactures an emotional high for you. So we manufacture a, a service that tries to get emotions drawn out of you, not naturally. And so we, we see that and we become disgusted by that. You can go all over social media and see people who have turned away from the church who would say these things. And, and we say, I don't like being emotional because emotions make me do stupid things. Emotions make me make decisions I maybe regret later. And I will tell you, emotions can do that if you're not careful. But emotions are not bad. In fact, God has given you emotions so that you can experience this world in the best way possible. Because without emotions, you would never be able to feel or experience anything, good or bad. And here's what I know about culture and about people and about myself, is that we become bored and we turn off our emotions and we sit and we become like robots just standing and staring and going into a distance. And we never allow the gospel to captivate our soul again. I want you to look at this verse from Psalm 96.9. It comes from the message commentary, and they put it this way in their interpretation. They say, bring gifts and celebrate. Bow before the beauty of God. Then to your knees, everyone worship. Do you hear the wonder, the captivity of God in that em an emotional statement? Bring your gifts and celebrate Bow to your knees at the beauty of God and worship Him. This is an emotional verse tended to get an emotional response out of you for good reason. But here's what I know, and I say this out of experience. This is not a self-deprecating statement. This is just facts. I went to Liberty University for my bachelor's degree, and I was in classes with people who are all in ministry across the country and the world right now, and I know them, and I've seen them, and I watch them. Here's what I know is true about me. I know at least 50 people who are in ministry today who are way more knowledgeable about the Bible than I am. And I mean not even by a little bit, by a lot. I know a lot of people who have followed Jesus longer than I've been alive. I've been alive for 27 years, and there are many people in this world who have followed Jesus longer than 27 years. I know people that if, if I was honest, I could probably call to the stage and say, you can probably explain this story 10 times better than I could. But here's what I know. We've so intellectualized our faith that we refuse God to allow God to be the king of our heart and only the king of our mind. So we never allow ourselves to get emotional. We never allow ourselves to experience the grace of God that he wants you to experience on a daily basis. 
So we become stoic. We stand here and we, we don't engage in worship. We don't engage in the message and we walk out as if nothing has changed in our life. But what if God wants you to experience a fresh faith, a great grace every day like it was the first time? But if you only intellectualize your faith, it means nothing. J.D. Greer, a pastor in Raleigh at the Summit Church, says it this way. I think it's the best way to say it. Being able to explain the gospel is one thing. Having it captivate your soul is quite another. And what I love about that point is that you being able to explain the gospel to someone means nothing if you've never allowed it to captivate your heart. It means nothing to God. So what if you know the historical context of the Bible, but you've never allowed the story to actually change how you see your world, how you see your marriage? God isn't interested in you gaining all this information and nuggets to store in your brain. He wants transformation, and transformation begins right here when we allow what we learn to affect how we live. And this is the great hypocrisy of the 21st century church, or the church altogether, I should say, really historically, is that people professed they knew something, but went out and lived as if they didn't really know it. People who put the gospel at the center of their life allow their life to be surprised by God's grace every single day, so much so that they would feel emotional about it. Now that you have to be overly emotional and cry every day, but when's the last time you would say, I was so in awe of God that I dropped physically to my knees? Maybe never. When's the last time I heard a song and really let the words pierce my heart so much so that a tear came down my face? Maybe never. But God wants you to be surprised by his grace every day. And we don't get surprised by his grace because we feel like grace is expected to us. It goes back to point one, that somehow we feel like we deserve grace. So when grace is given to us, it means nothing. And as I end this, this message today, I want to end with one last slide because one of the things that's so important in a message like this, and I really try to do this the best I can in all of my messages, is I, I want to try to give a balance. Because if I do a message like this and I pray and say amen, what really happens is, is this is a very philosophical message. Well, this is a very cool idea. I never thought about it like this, but it doesn't really give any practicality to it. So I want to try to end with just a little bit of reflection and as I read this slide, I really hope that this would help you reflect on where you're at today. And I'm going to allow it to reflect on my heart where I'm at today, even as a pastor. I want to give you five signs that you are living a self-centered life. That you are thinking like a self-centered person. Here are five signs. These don't encompass all of it, but I do believe these are telling if this is true of us today. Here's the five ways we can be self-centered. Number one is you get upset over small things. You had a great morning. You woke up, the birds were chirping, had a great cup of coffee, you got on the road to go to work. Someone cuts you off. So you get angry. You get frustrated. So you take that into work. And then for you to get your job done, you have to wait for a response from your boss who you emailed two weeks ago and he still hasn't got back to you. And so you're not even capable of really getting your job done today because your boss doesn't seem to know how to check his emails. So that frustrates you even more. And then you go home, and you see that your wife or your kids never took out the trash like you asked them to do in the morning, and now you're even more frustrated. And you take it out on your kids, and you take it out on your wife, and now you go to bed angry. Even though your day started out great, 
You allow these small things to take root in your heart because if I'm honest, what that really says is that you feel like you're entitled to more. You feel like you're entitled to justice. You feel like you're, you shouldn't be getting cut off in traffic. You don't deserve to have your boss ignore your emails. You don't deserve to have your wife and your kids not listen to one simple task you asked them to do in the course of a 15-hour day. That somehow we're at the center. And because I had injustice done to me, it ruins my whole day. Number two is you are too busy for the spiritual. You've over-calendared, you've overcalendared so much that you push God out of your life. I don't have to get on my soapbox, and I refuse to get on my soapbox, about why putting your kids in 15 different travel leagues is actually probably more harmful for them because you're pushing way too much of what's most important out of their life. You're too busy for the spiritual. God comes last on your priority list. Church comes last on your priority list. And if you're one of those people who don't see the importance of church, take that out of the equation. You take spiritual time with God out of your priority list. You become bitter easily in relationships. You, you could have a friend for 15 years and the one time they make a mistake and betray your, your trust, even if it was unintentional or even if they regretted it and, and said they were sorry, you're still like, buddy, that's, it's over. You got one shot and you missed it. You know, we've been friends for 15 years, but it means nothing because you betrayed my trust one time and I'm done. I'm not even going to try to reconcile with you. We're done here. Don't talk to me. Take me off your Facebook friends list. We're done. And I want you to chew on this because that's a telltale sign that you become easy, bitter easily in relationships. Just think about it this way. What would your life look like if that's the mindset God took towards you? That God had given you so much grace and so much patience, but the one time you messed up, it was over. He wiped his hands clean of you. Our God doesn't act that way towards us, and we're not called to act that way towards others. You trust yourself more than you trust God. No one in this room would stand up before people and say, I trust myself more than I trust God. But we live in such a way. When's the one time you maybe had a big decision in front of you, and here's what you did. You took out a, a piece of notebook paper, and you wrote a pros and cons list. And you said, well, if the pros outweigh the cons, then that's really the way we should go. And if the cons outweigh the pros, then really we should not do it. And we take God out of the equation. We don't pray, we don't wait, we don't ask. So in a way, you're saying, I trust my own intuition better than I trust what God may have for me. Or it, let's just, because I, I said this at first service, I'll say it to you. Man, sometimes we pray, but it doesn't really mean anything. I've done this, even as a pastor. I, I've had a big decision in front of me, and I said, I'm going to pray and see what God would have. God, give me discernment. God, give me wisdom. Help show me the path that you would have me go down. Amen. And then 30 seconds later, I'd make the decision I wanted anyway. It, it doesn't matter. That, that prayer means nothing. Asking God for wisdom sometimes means having to wait for two weeks before you feel an answer. Sometimes it means even though the cons outweigh the pros, God's still telling you to go with what's right and choose that path. When we live in that way, we're saying with our life that we trust our instincts more than we trust God. That's a self-centered life. And lastly, I think if you could take anything out of this to be the last one, you lack compassion for others. A telltale sign you've not allowed the gospel to change your life is the fact that you won't extend grace to those who have hurt you. You've not extended grace. You've been given compassion. You've been given mercy. You've been given grace by God, but you refuse to give it to those different than you or those who have hurt you. And you refuse to extend compassion. You become bitter. You refuse to give forgiveness. And I'm telling you, if you live that way, you're living in a way that says what's most important is not what God tells me to do, but what I feel is right. And when it comes to the parable of the sower or of the workers in the vineyard, this is true. The first will be last and the last will be first. And that's, this is what it means. The first group represents the wrong perspective on life. They were giving blessings upon blessings that day, but yet they chose 
to see their work as a reward and not a gift. They chose to define goodness based on what they thought was right. They chose to look at life that way and compare their portion versus being grateful for their portion. And, and this is how they chose to see the world. The first thinkers think this way. And the last group who was hired to only work a measly hour was grateful for what they were given. They saw it as a true gift from the landowner that they would be generous. They understood that what was good was based on what the landowner decided to give them. The landowner could have paid them less than one denarius and they still would have been grateful for what they've been given. And this is how we grow. When you're able to move out of a self-centered perspective on your life and your faith, you will begin to grow because you keep God at the center. But if we're willing to put ourselves at the center and only focus on what's good for us, only focus on the injustice done against us, we will miss the whole point of our faith and we will miss the whole point of the story of the Bible and we will be stagnant, we will be stoic, we will be lethargic, we will be bitter, and we will be dead in our faith. My hope for you and my hope for me today is that we can move beyond that and start to tweak some things in how we see the world, how we see our money, how we see our possessions, how we see our broken relationships with our mother, and we will begin to see them in a way that God intends us to see them as. Not battling to be first, but choosing to be grateful that we're even in God's family, even if we're last and the least among these things. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for these people. Thank you for your word, God. Uh, God, you tell us what is truth. I'm just here to point to what you say is truth, God. These, these things are straight from your word. And I pray, first and foremost for me, God, I pray that I wouldn't just come up here and preach a message about looking at life through a gospel-centered lens and just go out as if nothing changed in my life. But God, help start with me. Start with me as a leader. Start with me as a pastor and help me see what it means to change some of the things I do wrong, some of the ways I think wrong, God, some of the ways I perceive my life in a bad, self-centered way. Help me be humble. Help me be convicted. Help me be changed by the gospel every day. God, help me please never become bored with grace. Help me be surprised every day that you've chosen to give me another day, that you've chosen to give me another gift. God, as we leave here, I just pray uh, these things wouldn't fall on deaf ears and that people wouldn't walk out and just simply forget all that you're trying to tell them today, God. Not that I'm trying to tell them, that you're trying to tell them. Help us become men and women who are serious about putting the gospel at the forefront of our lives. That we would be able to go wherever we're, we're at, go through any situation and still see what you're trying to do, God. Help us see that goodness is defined by what you have for us, not what we have for ourselves. God bless us as we go. Allow us to continue to worship you as we walk out those doors to our cars today and allow us to be men and women who are changed every second of every day because of what you freely chose to give us. We pray it in your name. Amen. Love you guys. You can have a great Sunday.